When I was a couple weeks short of my 70th birthday, I started thinking about my mother's mother, who lived to be 100, and her mother, who lived to be 102, and my father, who lived to be 90, longer than anyone we had ever heard of in his family. I began to think that maybe our generation could be the first to routinely live to be 100. When I talked about this at family dinner one night, my granddaughter, who was five, said, What are you going to do for the next 30 years, Grandpa? Hello, I'm Dr. Janet Price. And I'm Greg Kalust. And we are Oldish. And this is our new podcast, Oldish. If you're Oldish, or know someone who is, please join us every week for conversations amongst ourselves. And our special guests. About what it means to be oldish in the 21st century. If you ever wonder whether you're getting old, you're oldish. What are you going to do for the next 30 minutes? Hi, my name is Janet, and I am oldish. Hi, my name is Greg, and I am oldish. A few weeks ago, we spoke with my oldish friend, Chris Balch. We talked for a while about our trips to Nepal and about oldish adventuring in general. We were having so much fun, we kept on talking and the conversation veered into oldish political and environmental activism, which is also one of Chris's passions. Here's some of that conversation. Let's segue a little bit into something else that that you're actively involved in, Chris, that I really want to know more about, and it's something that I haven't done since I was in my 20s, so I have no oldish experience of, of, of what you've been doing, which is some really serious political and social activism over the last few years. And I don't know whether you started doing that when you were oldish or whether you, something that you just carried on, but could you talk about that a little bit and also mention that you're not currently in jail? I'm actually not behind bars right now. <laughs> I have been arrested three times in the last month for my resistance activities. So, so to answer your question, my first experience is sort of resisting um, stuff that's going on that I didn't think was right or that I didn't believe in was when they were trying to build the Seabrook power plant. And it was a nuclear power plant. And the big question that never could be answered was, what are you going to do with the nuclear waste? The power plant, I believed as a science person who really studied it a little bit, I believed it was pretty safe, you know, despite movies like the China syndrome and things like that. I, I said, yeah, I think they pretty well have it waxed that way. But but they can't answer the question of what are you going to do with the nuclear waste? Well, this was back in the 1970s. And I don't know if you know this, but all of the nuclear waste that was generated at Seabrook is still on site. Oh, man. It's actually in a container in the parking lot. And I just, yeah, I know. I just, I, so what are you going to do with the nuclear waste? Well, we're going to put it in a dumpster in the parking lot. <laughs> it's kind of a fancy glorified dumpster, but it is a dumpster more or less. So, so there it is. So we fought against the Seabrook power plant, protested there, got arrested for trespassing, got put in jail, got released, paid a very small fine, $25, I think, though actually in those days, it seemed like a lot to me. And that was, that was the beginning of my activism career. The years that I was teaching full time, I was more of an activist through my educational um, endeavors where I would teach kids to think critically and to help them to understand what that really meant and why they should question things and not just accept anybody's sort of teachings, even my own, without without questioning them and asking questions and and being curious and and trying to find out what's real and what's what's actually perceived as being real but maybe isn't real. 
And then after I, towards the end of my teaching career, they started to try to put the New England direct pipeline through. And this was a Tennessee Valley gas company. I'm working with, um, oh gosh, now their name slips my head, another another big gas company. And they wanted to put a, a gas pipeline right through the Northeast. And and so it the, the pipeline was a bad idea. It was going to cross through a lot of pristine sort of wilderness areas. It was going to actually go through state parks. It required a 500-foot swath to be cut so that they could bury it and bring the big machinery through and all that kind of stuff. And we fought against it. And we, we won, kind of, in that they never built the pipeline. But the reason we won was because they didn't have enough gas customers signed up to justify the expense of it. So they discontinued the plans for it, which was which was ultimately good, but we didn't win a moral victory. We didn't win based on some realization that what they were trying to do was really not the right thing to do. And so I, I was very suspicious about that victory and, and for good reason. So shortly after that, I got involved with the fight against Northern Pass. Northern Pass was essentially an extension cord between Hydro-Quebec and Massachusetts that would have gone through New Hampshire. And again, it was going to be a huge above ground for the most part power line that was going to require 500 foot swaths to be cut and big towers going in. And though it was going to follow utility corridors for a good part of its time, instead of being a 75 foot tower in the corridor that would, that already existed, you were talking about 250 foot corridor towers that would be in the corridor. And there's a big difference. You know, there's a huge difference between that. They touted the energy from Northern Pass as being clean energy, but Hydro-Quebec actually stole land from the Pessimate Indians and flooded that land and never compensated them for it. And so, and then when you flood land, you, you kill the forest that you're flooding. And then that forest decom decomposes underneath the water and releases methane. And methane is one of the worst atmospheric gases we can release. It's much worse than CO2. So we fought against that. And um, the site evaluation committee from New Hampshire denied the permits for Northern Pass. And that was based on many of the things that we had fought for. So we won a clear moral victory. But what, what Eversource and uh, Hydro-Quebec did was they switched the project over to Maine. So the Northern Maine Power Corridor that you guys are dealing with is Northern Pass all over again. And all the reasons that Northern Pass was not good for New Hampshire are the same reasons it's not good for Maine. But companies want what they want. They want profits. They want they want their their money. So they're going to go ahead and they're going to try to push it through again. And so now you guys, uh, I know you had a referendum last November and the referendum voted it. But the referendum was considered non-binding by the those power authorities and so there's it's it's still in the works it may not happen somewhere in there was standing rock where the dakota access pipeline was being built across native american unceded territory and without their permission and originally it was supposed to be built just above bismarck north dakota and uh, the people in bismarck objected because they were afraid that it was going to pollute their water supply so they moved it south of Bismarck, so it would only affect the Native Americans' water supply, you know, which is the usual, you know, the Native American population, the indigenous populations considered second class. So I went to Standing Rock and drove out there in my little Subaru wagon in December 
And I, I lived in the back of my Subaru wagon while, while I was there for about 10 days. And it was sub-zero temperatures and blizzards and just brutal. But I participated in the peace march and the forgiveness ceremonies between the veterans and the, and the uh, people of Standing Rock and on the front lines uh, a couple of times where you know, I was face to face with some of the people that some some of the Tiger Swan security folks that were there trying to keep us from blocking the bridge, but we blocked the bridge and we held the bridge against them. And I saw things there that really stick in my mind. I saw Native American people kneeling in prayer in a line, and a guy from either Tiger Swan or from the deputy department or sheriff's department or someplace just walking down the line, just walking right down the line, macing people who were kneeling in prayer and. And somehow that was okay. And uh, somehow that was supposed to be okay. And it was it was hard. But instead of um, making me feel defeated, even though we lost that battle, it just made me more dedicated to seeing that these kinds of injustices get stopped at some point. Whether I'm part of that final effort that makes it happen or not isn't so important as that my job is to try to bring awareness to it and to help people understand that the kinds of things that are being done in the name of profits are not necessarily good for us all. Matter of fact, most of them are pretty bad <laughs> for us all. And uh, they're only good for those who are reaping those profits. So I went to the treaty people gathering in Minnesota and fought line three, the line three pipeline. And I was on the front lines there, almost got arrested, but they let me go. And that was kind of cool. I didn't think. And that was with the Anishinaabe folks, mostly Ojibwe. And they were really, I love spending time with Native American cultures. I always come away feeling restored, refreshed, and so impressed by how much respect there is for just everything. Mm -hmm. Respect for life, respect for each other, respect is just like, mm -hmm. it's just a key cultural component for all of the indigenous folks that I've spent time with. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I was at Standing Rock, they taught me a little bit of their language. So ah. I can say, which uh, means until my eyes see you again, because they don't really have a word for farewell. Mm -hmm. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I guess more locally, we, we're dealing with a uh, red pine scale, which is a blight which affects the red pine trees and it is a very significant problem. And it comes on the heels of white pine scale, and it comes on the heels of beech bark disease. So with this red pine scale, what happens is that the trees are infected, and the lower branches of the trees turn red, which is how you know that they're sick. And then they eventually die. And once they've died, they decay very quickly because they have the bark on, and they're standing dead, and they are worthless as far as timber goes. So in our Russell mm -hmm. Abbott Forest, which is a local forest, mm -hmm. he, the rangers and the forestry department has determined that they're going to cut the red pines down before they get infected. And the way that they put it to me when, when they talked to them about it is they said, before they're worthless. Mm. And I, I suggested to them that there was a scientific basis for not cutting them down. And they said, no, there isn't. And I said, yeah, there really is. I said, there are always a certain percentage of a population that because of variations within the genetics are going to be immune. Mm. And when you cut down all the trees, you're cutting down the immune trees too. And you have no idea which ones those are. I said, so, you know, natural disasters happened to forests long before we were around. The forests would recover from them. And so they would recover from this as well. 
given the opportunity. But if you cut down all the trees, obviously, that's not going to happen. So I was ignored. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, I was ignored. So I was hoping I, that there would be a different next step there, a different there, ending. There was a very different yes. next step. Yes. I, I boiled over. I said, okay, you cannot ignore the science. You cannot just ignore me. You cannot do that. And I bought myself a whole bunch of 18, uh, sorry, eight inch tree spikes. And I went out and I spiked the trees. What does that mean? I, put, I drove metal spikes into the trees so that they couldn't cut them down. Oh. It's extreme. So, so anyway, I went out to the Russell, Russell Abbott forest and I spiked trees and I put warning signs up on all the trees saying that they were spiked and that you couldn't cut them down because you'd get hurt. Um, and I, it was kind of a large endeavor because there were thousands of trees and I was out there for, this was in January. So I was out there spiking trees. And then unfortunately I went back to the forest just one too many times <laughs> and they had put up cameras. And so they got pictures and video of me spiking trees. And sometime in late February, I saw a big red truck with forest service symbols on the side, pull into my driveway and these guys got out with search warrants, and they they said you're under arrest. So I was arrested for four four different counts of timber trespass and criminal mischief, and and it was you know it was it's not a lot of fun. Uh, I'll be dealing with this right through most of the fall probably, but you know, but this is what has to happen: is people just have to say no nope, enough. You're, we're going to just stop you. And to to this day, they still haven't cut the forest. So, so I've been somewhat successful. I have seen, I've been back a few times to look at it. They have removed most of my spikes. So they're probably going to cut the forest at some point. And now I'm defanged. I can't really do anything else. If I do anything else, I'll, I'll end up with jail time right now. I'm not looking at jail time. So, so I'm kind of stuck with that. And I've also been working with a a group called no coal, no gas, and they're working to have the, um, the Bow New Hampshire power plant, which is a coal generating plant, the dirtiest plant in the Northeast, they, they really would like to get it taken offline. And it is a demand plant, which means that it only runs about four days a year when there's a peak demand. But the amount that they're paid, they're paid about $4 million a year to run. And so even, so they get about a million dollars a day to run, which is what they get, uh, which is just ridiculous. And when you figure out how big a solar plant you could build for that $4 million that would generate anytime the sun shone. And you could also store energy when the sun's not shining and meet that peak demand much, much more sustainably. It's really ridiculous. So I was there when we, we blockaded their gates and we started to dig up their driveway to plant a garden. (laughs) I just thought that was kind of a cool idea. And, And I got arrested there too. So, and again, it was criminal mischief and criminal trespass. And so I'm facing court time, court with that. Again, that's not a jail time thing. So I'm not really concerned about that. But um, so those are sort of the the activistic things that I'm doing and why I'm doing them. You know, I, I, I'm a very staunch believer in the science behind climate change. I understand it. It's really not hard to understand. People just have to take the time to, to read about it, to educate themselves about it. And then they'll understand just how critically important it is that we take significant action really immediately. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just last week, 
Actually, it was the week before last. It was Monday, the week before last now. Issued a report, and the report starts off with the actual words, it's now or never. If we do not take action, significant action, to reduce CO2 emissions within the next two years, we will see three degrees or more by 2030, which is only seven years away. And once we go over that time, our climate really will destabilize and we will be in deep doo-doo for quite a long time before it can restabilize itself. Um, and those, what those kinds of impacts are, you know, there's some coastal flooding and things like that, but there are areas of extreme drought, areas of extreme flooding, supply lines, supply chains, food production becomes more difficult, food becomes more expensive. There's a lot of damage by extreme storms. Taxes have to go up to pay for those damages. You know, it's just all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, it has very far-reaching impacts. And and even beyond that, we lost them again. <laughs> and even beyond that, we have, you know, we have the impacts of what happens to our children and our grandchildren, immigrants. We have a lot of uh, immigrants coming to our southern borders because of climate change. You know, they're not making it as farmers anymore. They, they can't farm because the droughts have intensified to the point where their farms are just not viable. It, it's funny. I wrote, a, I wrote a letter that's called a necessity letter. And so if you're, if you're an activist and you're planning on getting arrested sooner or later, or even if you're not planning on it, one of the defenses that you try to use is called competing harms. And competing harms is I did what I did because it's less harmful than letting what's going on continue to go. And it's also called the necessity defense. And so in my necessity letter, which explains all of my motivations, the fact that I was actually a member of the, the legislature here in New Hampshire, and I proposed 26 different pieces of legislation in two years. And even though some of them passed the House and the Senate, they were vetoed by the governor because they were well, he was on a veto roll that year where he did 59 pieces of legislation, the more than any other governor ever has. But in my necessity letter, I close it off that I can actually probably find it and read it. But, but basically what it says is I admit to some resentment that at the age of 67, which is what I was at the time, <clears throat> I have to pick up this burden uh, due to a short-sightedness on the, on the part of the human race and a horrific greed by the companies and corporations. Nevertheless, by signing below, I agreed to pick it up. And that's how I feel. Chris, how does it feel now to be an activist as opposed to as you're now that you're oldish, how did how do how does it differ from when you were youngish? I mean, I feel like I shouldn't have to do this is not the way I wanted to spend my golden years, you know, I wanted to just feel light and free. And one of the great inspirations and guides that has helped me to deal with all of this is a, is a, an author named Edward Abbey, who you probably have heard of, but he wrote Desert Solitaire and the Monkey Wrench Gang and things like that. And he, he says, be a half-assed activist. You know, don't forget to get out there and love and enjoy and ramble and and one of the things he says, and breathe deep of that sweet, clear, and still lucid air, uh, which is such a beautiful phrase, you know, and, and bag the peaks and swim and fish and hunt and do all of those things that you're trying to protect, you're trying to save, because if you don't enjoy them, you're not going to enjoy your life. And you can't live, nobody can live that way, whether you're young, medium, or oldish. I'm a grandmom 
And, you know, I'm thinking about how I think about, you know, how it impacts homelessness, it impacts refugees, people fleeing areas that are impacted by climate change, by not having enough food or everything you were saying, the flooding, the extreme temperatures, the increase in conflict, international conflict that gets hidden by the surfacey reasons why the conflicts are happening when the underlying causes are results of climate change or impact of climate change that is impacting everything. And I'm wondering, just as an aside, how old Edward Abbey was when he wrote that. You know, is the wisdom of being oldish that he could, I don't know anything about him, that he could look back at a life of, of, of activism and realize don't, don't lose the experience and the enjoyment and the wonder of what you're being an activist for. Yeah, he was, he was a little bit oldish at the time. It was one of his later essays, and part of one of his later essays, and I think he was probably 62, 63, somewhere in that ballpark. So, yeah. You know, the only thing I would I would add is I think I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. That being oldish doesn't mean you lose ground. <laughs> being oldish can be that you really gain a lot of ground. And, and that's how I feel. I feel like my life is richer, more diverse, happier more satisfied, more, more, all of the good stuff than ever before. And that I think that that only makes me look forward to more, you know, that I like, I like the way things are going. That's beautiful, Chris. I'm so glad that we got to, to talk and what everything you said is inspiring and lovely. Well, and I think, well, and I think that that's part of the mission of this podcast is to bring to our listeners this option that oldish doesn't have to be the end and waiting for the end. It's it's a time for continued new experiences, continued lifelong experiences, and finding happiness, contentment, and finding the magic in each. Yeah, it was nice to meet you, Janet. So, Chris, I wanna I, I wanna thank you for joining us today i kind of wish we could let's just talk every day you know just it would it would be wonderful to carry on this conversation and and just keep going but i know that you know we we all have um, time limits and our listeners all have time limits and so we can't keep going all day every day starting from now and 24 7 that won't work but you've done a wonderful job helping and me anyway, to understand what oldish means from your point of view, not so much by a definition of the term, but just by your behaviors, your attitudes, your your beautiful soul, your your kindness. And that's all super important. And and can't thank you enough for coming on with us today. Well thank you. And it's been really a pleasure. And of course you and I go back a ways, old man, and I hope we go forward a long ways. Yeah, I, I, I think we will. And, you know, what what you just said about being happy, I've never been this happy before. And I remember specifically in my 40s and 50s, I, I would start to read things where people said, oh, yeah, now that I'm old, I'm happier than I've ever been. And my response is always, yeah, sure. But now that I'm oldish, I, it's true. I actually am happier in many ways. And I know that that's not necessarily the case for everybody, but it's a great blessing. 
as is knowing you, my friend. And peace and love to everybody. That's it for now. Thanks to our very special guest, Chris Balch. We hope you had as much fun and learned as much as we did. I've been away for a few weeks taking a maiden trip in my newly built-out minivan camper. I want to explore the nomad life while still oldish. Stay tuned for our next episode, in which Janet will interview me for our new episode series, Pickleball Nomad, as she tries to figure out what the heck a guy my age is doing exploring van life while looking for new places to play pickleball. 